Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 26th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here we are going to present the Protocols of Satan, Part 18. And we are only going to scratch the surface of Protocol Number 2 as it speaks of the economic plans of the Jew and that is also a title from the from from a chapter of the international Jew which we are going to present here along with some other material in the last segment of our presentation of the protocols of Satan we took a digression in order to present four so-called protocols which first appeared earlier than and independent of the protocols of the learned elders of Zeon. These earlier protocols had been compiled by the Breton's Publishing Company, evidently sometime in the mid-1920s, and then republished by Colonel Eugene Nelson Sanctuary in a booklet in 1934. Sanctuary himself published many such works, his own writing and the writing of others, and he was later a victim of the Roosevelt administration's sedition trials. The four protocols published by the Breton's publishing company were taken from the following sources, a document containing advice for French Jews, which was supposedly from the Jewish Council of Rabbis at Constantinople, written in 1489 and reprinted in the French language and Jewish-owned and operated Journal of Jewish Studies in 1880. The second protocol was a manifesto issued in 1860 to the quote-unquote Jews of the Universe by Adolf Crimeo, the founder of the Universal Alliance of Israelites, a name which we hate to use in reference to Jews because it's simply not true. He was a member of the Provisional Government of France in 1871 and a Grand Master of the French Masonic Lodges, which were all Jewish in nature. The third one was a funeral oration of a Rabbi Reichhorn, given at the tomb of a Jew named Simeon ben Judah in 1869. And the fourth was a document in the Hebrew language apparently dating from, well, the Yiddish language, I should say, apparently dating from December of 1918, which was found on the body of a dead Bolshevik battalion commander and published in a Russian-language newspaper in Berlin in February of 1919. The document was addressed to the so-called Israelite International League and seems to have exposed some of the secrets of the Jews in Russia who executed the Bolshevik Revolution and the future Soviet Russia. These four protocols were important for us to take notice of because they were all published before the protocols of the learned elders of Zeon were ever published in English and they reflect and corroborate much of the material in the larger protocols. Therefore, they are an additional witness that at least many European Jews in influential positions did indeed hold the views and had the aspirations which are expressed in the Protocols of Zion, 
And if that is so, then the protocols of Xeon are once again proven to be the document which it claims for itself to be, which is a document outlining the plot of world Jewry against Christendom. Of course, the real proof is fully evident in the proverbial pudding. Now we are going to commence with our discussion of the so-called protocols of the learned elders of Zeon, as they are found in the book The Protocols and World Revolution, attributed to Boris Brassall and published in Boston in 1920 by Maynard Small and Company. This is the second of the protocols, and we never know where the discussion will take us when we begin to prepare it. So we have no idea how many segments it may take to complete. We suspect that the balance of each of the 24 protocols won't take quite as long to present as our discussion of the first. But then again, we can never tell. The first paragraph of protocol number two, and honestly, that's about as far as we're going to get this evening, it is necessary for us, obviously a reference to the Jews, it is necessary for us that wars, whenever possible, should bring no territorial advantages. This will shift war to an economic basis and force nations to realize the strength of our predominance, Jewish predominance. Such a situation will put both sides at the mercy of our million-eyed international agency, which will be unhampered by any frontiers. Then our international rights will do away with national rights in a limited sense and will rule the peoples in the same way as the civil power of each state regulates the relation of its subjects among themselves. And this is definitely the trend that we have seen these last 30 or 40 years with this great push towards open borders, this great push towards the homogenization of laws, the push towards globalism, free trade, free travel, free immigration. It's all breaking down those national boundaries and doing away with national rights. We are going to present a chapter from Volume 4 of the International Jew in its entirety. This chapter is entitled, The Economic Plans of the International Jews, and we will probably also cite certain portions of it in future presentations in this series. We did not originally plan to present the entire chapter, and it's going to make for a long evening because we have a lengthy quote from another source, but we had begun to cite such a large portion of it that we may as well present the whole thing. This was published in a Dearborn Independent, and the dating is important, on July 23, 1921, and we will only interject a few of our own comments. The Economic Plans of the International Jews The strength of Jewish money is in its internationalism. It stretches a chain of banks and centers of financial control across the world and plays them on the side of the game that favors Jewry. The original publication used the term Judah. However, 
and Ford probably couldn't have known better, unless he's a classical historian. Jewry and Judah are not the same, not even close. Jewry is not Judah. So we will substitute the term Jewry, which is proper. This center was, and for the moment is, in Germany, at Frankfurt on the Main. But feverish anxiety now accompanies the fear that it may have to be moved. Now this was written 12 years before Adolf Hitler had any political power. So I don't know what these fears may have been in 1921. The um, Free Corps had put down several communist coups in various parts of Germany just before this time. But they were no real threat to the Weimar Republic or to general Jewish influence and power. Not that I ever saw. Destiny is overtaking the Jewish world power. The gold, which is their god, the god of the living is what they call their gold, is being brought overseas on every available ship and locked up in the vaults of Jewish bankers in North and South America, not to enrich this hemisphere, but to mobilize Jewish financial power for any desperate stroke, which they obviously needed in 1933. Financial Jewry is afraid. It has a right to be afraid. Its conscience, still bloody from the war whose gains have not yet stopped, is in a troubled state. The Jews were probably shocked at everything that they could get away with, even at this time. Single Jewish banking houses in any country, however great such banks should grow, would be no menace, in spite of the fact that the richest bankers in the world are Jews. As mere bankers in their several countries, they would not occasion alarm. In straight out-and-out banking, the Jew is not a success. The Rothschilds were never bankers in a proper sense. They were money lenders to nations whose representatives they had corrupted to seek the loans. The National Socialists told, told the story very well in their own movie, Jude Sus. They did business precisely on the plane of the money lender in the side street who induces the rich man's son to borrow a large sum, knowing that the father will pay. That is scarcely banking. Brains of that sort may get money, but will not make money. The deposit banking of the world is not done in Jewish banks anyway. Even Jewish depositors prefer banks which are managed by non-Jews, according to Henry Ford in 1921. It is not, therefore, the success of the individual Jewish banking house that concerns us. Flabby-minded non-Jews who have been blinded by pro-Jewish propaganda find difficulty in seeing that point. They say that the individual Jewish businessman has as much right to his business success as has anyone else, which is a perfect Jewish platitude. Certainly he has. Who ever stated that he had not? And Ford seems to have been slightly blinded by libertarianism. But when you are dealing with a world chain of financial consulates, all of them linking up in a world system, 
none of them to be regarded as American banks or British banks or French banks or Italian banks or German banks, but all of them members of the Jewish world banking system. You are obviously not dealing with individuals who are trying to make a living. You are then dealing with a mighty force for good or ill. And thus far, sad to know the truth, the ill is mountainous in comparison. And this seems to summarize for me the struggle between libertarianism and nationalism. Libertarianism is Jewish and represents a scheme which legitimizes the Jewish conspiracy against national interests everywhere. Today, unfortunately, even many nationalist-minded people are confused by libertarian ideals and have actually adopted them as being beneficial to their nationalism, and they certainly are not. Ford continues by saying, nor does this Jewish banking system require that in each country a Jewish house be the most important. It is not the wealth and importance of single houses, but the wealth and importance of the world chain that gives the strength. Kuhn Loeb and Company is far from being the most important financial house in the United States. But with its foreign connections, all Jewish, it takes on a new aspect. Kuhn Loeb and Company is far from being the most important banking house in the United States. The repet- repetition is in the original. And yet it was an idea that came out of Kuhn Loeb and Company's office that now dominates the monetary system of the United States. Paul Warburg, a German Jew, Skion of the Jewish World Banking Group is boosted into undue prominence and power through the pressure of banker-bought prestige in government circles. It is his connections, Jewish ones, that count. And what Mr. Ford and the Dearborn Independent are telling us is that the idea for the Federal Reserve Banking System came from Kuhn Loeb and Company. And Paul Warburg was the first chairman of the Federal Reserve. The Warburg idea in the United States, dovetailing with the Stearns, the Furstenbergs, the Sansensheens, and the Sassoons and Samuels and Blackroders overseas, was something to wonder at. Jewish bankers ran this war as they have run every great war, referring to the First World War. No informed Jew will deny that. Most informed Jews have boasted of it as indicating the importance of their people. Above the nations at war was an international financial committee, all Jewish, looking down upon all the ruction and blood as serenely as American baseball league directors look down upon a pennant series separated, each man tied to his own country by ties of undivided nationalistic loyalty, none of these would have amounted to much. And Ford probably was altruistic enough to think that a Jew could have undivided nationalistic loyalty, which we would think is not possible. United as a supranational financial board, knowing the secrets of all the nations, 
conferring one with another in all sorts of ways. Even during the hardest days when all communication between countries was supposed to be locked by war, deciding the duration of the war in the hour of so-called peace, these groups constitute a danger which no one doubts after once having clearly seen it. <coughs> and of course they still have it today. And Chabad visits the capital seats of government of every nation on earth and gets their way, but nobody notices that either. We should recollect the words of protocol number one, where it is said, on the ruins of natural and hereditary aristocracy, we will build an aristocracy of our intellectual class, the money aristocracy, which have established this new aristocracy on the qualification of wealth, which is dependent upon us, and also upon science, which is promoted by our wise men. When the hereditary aristocracy of the Christian nations was deposed, the craft of governance fell to elected officials from among the lower classes who were not practiced in governance, and the Jews stepped into the vacuum. This is exactly what the writers of the protocols said would happen. So it also says in protocol number one, that meanwhile, dynastic government has been based upon this, that the father passed to his son the knowledge of the course of political evolution, so that nobody except the members of the dynasty could possess this knowledge, and no one could disclose the secrets to the governed people. In the course of time, the meaning of the dynastic transmission of the true understanding of politics has been lost, thus contributing to the success of our cause. And now, the Jews, as a collective group, possess that knowledge, with certain Gentiles who are merely admitted to the club. Continuing with our chapter of the International Jew. Men who can thus manipulate money in the time of war can do so in time of peace. The United States is living under some of that peace manipulation now. And this is 1921, the spring of 1921. The reader of the protocols <clears throat> is much impressed by the financial notes that are sounded through their proposals. The Jewish defense against the protocols, that they were written by a criminal or a madman, is intended only for those who have not read the protocols, or who have overlooked the financial plans they offer. Madmen and criminals do not coolly dissect one money system and invent another, as do the protocolists, Ford's term for the writers of the protocols. Here we are going to take a digression. And we're going to quote from chapter 16 of a book titled, The Unseen Hand, by Aroff Epperson. We are not entirely pleased with Epperson's work, but he does a good job of teaching the basics of economics in the role of history, illuminating the Jewish conspiracy. He doesn't call it a Jewish conspiracy. He uses other terms, but he's illuminating the Jewish conspiracy in the background of history in a very basic manner. This chapter is titled, The Federal Reserve. The first part of the chapter describes how the bankers, especially the major bankers such as J.P. Morgan, who was under Rothschild influence, 
conspired to create bank runs, convincing the nation of the need for what became the Federal Reserve. But the part of the chapter we will cite discusses the manipulation of the economy in the years prior to the artificially created Great Depression. And that's the part we're interested in, because it dovetails right in line with this portion of the protocols and with this chapter of the International Jew. And we will pick up from just after the creation of the Federal Reserve System. And Epperson says, but in any event, the system after its creation in 1913... (coughs) was in a position to loan the federal government large sums of money, money created from nothing. Their first real opportunity to do this occurred just a few years later, during World War One. And he provides a table, and he says, the following table illustrates just how much money the system loaned the United States government during the war. And we cannot read the chart here, but it shows that the bankers who had gotten the United States into the war as early as in early 1917, had loaned the government, <clears throat> and Epperson did not provide the figures for 1915, but I'm sure they were close to zero. They had loaned the government $48 million in 1916, $853 million in 1917, Nine billion three nine billion and thirty two million dollars in nineteen eighteen and thirteen billion two hundred and sixty two million dollars in nineteen nineteen and then after the war two hundred and ninety one million dollars in nineteen twenty and Epperson goes on to say that the table shows how the size of the government grew from nineteen sixteen to nineteen twenty and how enormous quantities of debt were accumulated. This money, in large part, was borrowed from the Federal Reserve System, America's central bank, which, quote-unquote, has benefit of interests on all monies which it creates out of nothing. In addition to the ability to create interest-bearing debt, the Federal Reserve System also has the ability to create economic cycles through the expansion and contraction of the quantity of money and credit. Their first major opportunity to create a depression by this method occurred in 1920 when the Federal Reserve created what has become known as the Panic of 1920. One of those who saw how this was the result of prior economic planning was Congressman Lindbergh, who in 1921 wrote in his book Economic Pinch, the following. Under the Federal Reserve Act, panics are scientifically created. The present panic is the first scientifically created one, worked out as we figure a mathematical problem. The process works in the following manner. The system increases the money supply. From 1914 to 1919, the quantity of money in the United States nearly doubled. The media then encourages the American people to borrow large quantities of money on credit. And when they do, employment goes up and wages go up and prices go up. Once the money is out on loan, the bankers contract the money supply by calling in their outstanding loans. The entire process was laid out by Senator Robert L. Owen, chairman of the Senate Banking and Currency Committee and a banker himself, 
He wrote, in the early part of 1920, the farmers were exceedingly prosperous. They were paying off their mortgages and buying a lot of land at the insistence of the government and had borrowed money to do it. And then they were bankrupted by a sudden contraction of credit which took place in 1920. What took place in 1920 was just the reverse of what should have been taking place. Instead of liquidating the excess of credits created by the war through a period of years, the Federal Reserve Board met in a meeting which was not disclosed to the public. They met on the 16th of May 1920, and it was a secret meeting. Only the big bankers were there, and the work of that day resulted in a contraction of credit by ordering banks to call in outstanding loans, which had the effect the next year of reducing the national income $15 billion, throwing millions of people out of employment and reducing the value of lands and ranches by $20 billion. Now that ends the quote from Senator Robert Owen, where Epperson continues and says, Not only did the bankers transfer large quantities of land from the farmers to the bankers by this contraction, but the process also transferred large numbers of banks from the hands of those bankers who could not meet the demands of the Federal Reserve and had to sell their banking assets for a reduced price to those who had the money to buy bankrupt banks. The Panic of 1920 bankrupted 5,400 banks. One of the major non-banking targets of this panic was Henry Ford, the automobile manufacturer. We must note here that in the first installment of what, what later became known, the first installment of what later became known as Ford's book, The International Jew, was published by the Dearborn Independent on May 22, 1920. So now we see the larger picture which lies behind the events that explain some of the reasons for that publication these things coalesced very well. Continuing with Epperson, who is in turn citing another source, despite inflation, Ford ordered a price cut for his automobiles, but demand was still insufficient and a number of Ford plants had to be shut down. Rumor had it that a huge loan was being negotiated, but Ford, who, who thought New York bankers were nothing short of vultures, was determined not to fall into their hands. Bankers lined up to offer their quote-unquote help in return for his surrender of independence. The game was clear to Mr. Ford. One representative of a Morgan-controlled bank in New York came forward with a plan to quote-unquote save Ford. Ford saved his company by turning to his dealers, to whom he now shipped his cars collect in spite of the slowness of the market. Demand grew and the plants were reopened. Epperson ending his citation continues and says that Ford had outsmarted the bankers who had planned the panic, in part to destroy him. He did not need to borrow large quantities of money and surrender control of his company to the bankers who would certainly wish to control that which they subsidized. The Panic of 1920 was a success, and this success, in other words, it was a success with every objective except that 
to captivate Henry Ford. And this success led the bankers to plan another, the crash of 1929. The first step was, once again, to increase the money supply. And this was done from 1921 to 1929, as is illustrated by the following table. <coughs> and we will not read the table, but Epperson shows the initial contraction of the money supply and then the expansion of it over the years from 1920 through 1929. And he says that the figures reveal that the Federal Reserve expanded the money supply from a low of $31.7 billion in 1921 to a high of $45.7 billion in 1929, an increase of approximately 144%. To move this increase in the money supply into the economy, individual banks could borrow money from the Federal Reserve and reloan it to the buying public. The money was borrowed at 5% interest and was reloaned re at 12. Contributing to the increase in the money supply, or the money being made available by the Federal Reserve, was the money being made available by the large corporations, which were loaning their surplus funds to buyers on Wall Street. These loans from these non-banking sources were approximately equal to those from the banking system. For instance, call loans to brokers in 1929 made by some leading corporations were as follows. American in Foreign Power, an agency of J.P. Morgan, $30,321,000. Electric Bond and Share, also J.P. Morgan, $157,000,000. Five times the, num the the amount of money in the economy in 1921, according to Mr. Epperson's figures. Standard Oil of New Jersey, which is the Rockefellers, $97.8 million. In addition, J.P. Morgan and Company had nearly $110 million in the call loan market. Now, they got out of that before the crash, but Epperson doesn't really describe how. This expansion in the money supply brought pros prosperity to the country, and the American people were encouraged by the media to buy into the stock market. They were told that those who did were making large quantities of money. The stockbrokers who were handling the new influx of buyers coming to make a fortune in the stock market were using a new tool to induce them into buying more shares of stock than they had anticipated. This new tool was called buying on margin and it enabled the stock buyer to borrow money and use it to buy stock. The buyer was encouraged to buy stock with only 10% down, borrowing the remaining 90% from the stockbroker, who had arranged for the buyer to borrow from either a bank or a large corporation. There was one catch, however, as the money was loaned to the buyer on what was called a 24-hour broker call loan. This meant that the broker could exercise his option and required that the borrower sell his stock and return a loan amount 24 hours after the lender had asked for it. The buyer had 24 hours to repay the loan and had to either sell the stock or come up with the loan amount to pay off the lender of the money. This meant that whenever the brokers wanted to, they could require all of the stock buyers to sell at the same time by calling all of the loans at the same time.
This activity would precipitate a panic on the stock market when all of the stock owners went to sell their stock. And when all the sellers offer stock at the same time, the price drops rapidly. The whole process was detailed by one author who wrote, When everything was ready, the New York financiers started calling a started calling 24-hour broker call loans. This meant that the stockbrokers and the customers had to dump their stock on the market in order to pay the loans. This naturally collapsed the stock market and brought a banking collapse all over the country because the banks not owned by the oligarchy were heavily involved in broker call loans at this time and bank runs soon exhausted their coin and currency as they had to close. The Federal Reserve System would not come to their aid, although they were instructed under the law to maintain an elastic currency. The Federal Reserve would not come to their, would not come to their aid, even though they were required by law to do so. And many banks and individuals went bankrupt. Notice that those banks owned by the oligarchy had already gotten out of the broker called loan business without any damage, and those who didn't went bankrupt. Is it possible, and Epperson is asking rhetorical questions here, is it possible that the Federal Reserve System planned it exactly as it happened? Is it possible that those banks that knew the game had gotten out while the prices were high and then came back into the market when they were low? Is it possible that some banks knew when the crash was coming and all that they had to do to buy bankrupt banks was wait until after the crash and then buy up the trouble banks at only a percentage of the true value? After the stock market crash of 1929, even a casual observer had to notice that the ownership of the banking system had changed. In fact, today, meaning 1990, 100 out of 14,100 banks control 50% of the nation's banking as assets. 14 big banks have 25% of the deposits. In any event, the stock market crashed. The stock market index shows the effects of this manipulation. In 1919, it was valued at $138 million. 1921, $66.24. I'm sorry, $138.12. In 1921, $66.24. In 1922, with the money supply becoming inflated, $469.49, much like the Dow Jones being $18,000 today. In 1932, $57.62. And that's a couple of years after the crash. One of the spectators of the stock market crash was Winston Churchill, who was brought to the stock market exchange on October 24, 1929, by Bernard Baruch. Some rare historians are convinced that Churchill was brought to witness the crash firsthand because it was desired that he see the power of the banking system at work. Even though many stockholders had to sell their stock, and Churchill went on to whore for the Jews for the next 30 years, even though many stockholders had to sell their stock, it is not commonly questioned as to who bought all of the stock that was being sold. The history books generally discuss all of the selling that went on during the crash, but 
fail to discuss all of the buying. And of course, that's what they always do. John Kenneth Galbraith, in his book The Great Crash, 1929, wrote this about the buyers. Nothing could have been more ingeniously designed to maximize the suffering, and also to ensure that as few as possible escaped the common misfortune. The fortunate speculator who had funds to answer the first margin call presently got another and equally urgent one, and if he met that, there would still be another. In the end, all the money he had was extracted from him and lost. The man with the smart money, who was safely out of the market when the first crash came, naturally went back in to pick up the bargains. And Epperson exclaims, naturally. One of those fortunate speculators who got out early was Bernard Baruch, the individual who brought Winston Churchill to witness the crash. He has said, I had begun to liquidate my stock holdings and to put my money into bonds and into a cash reserve. I also bought gold. From here, after discussing some of the other firms and individuals who managed to profit from the great crash, including international bankers and financiers Henry Morgenthau and Douglas Dillon of the later Dillon and Reed Investment Company, he then says that Joseph Kennedy was also one of those people who had gotten out of the market in time. And if that's true, it is probably not a coincidence that later on Douglas Dillon had served as Treasury Secretary under Presidents John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. Continuing with Epperson, the selling on credit during the crash had another effect already mentioned. About 16,000 banks, or 52% of the total, went out of business. Some of the stockholders went to their banks to withdraw whatever cash they had in the bank to pay whatever they could of their stock call in cash. This caused a nearly nationwide bank run. To end this panic, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was later elevated to power by the same Jewish bankers, two days after his inauguration in March of 1933, shut down all the banks for a quote-unquote holiday. There weren't many who saw what was happening to the, great, to the American people by these machinations of the bankers, but one who did was Congressman Louis McFadden, who was quoted as saying, When the Federal Reserve Act was passed, the people of these United States did not perceive that a world banking system was being set up here. A superstate controlled by international bankers and international industrialists acting together to enslave the world for their own pleasure. Every effort has been made by the Fed to conceal its powers. But the truth is, the Fed has usurped the government. It controls everything here and it controls all our foreign relations. It makes and breaks governments at will. And of course, Lewis McFadden wrote those things in the 1930s. After the stock market crash had run its course, Congressman McFadden charged that the money credit and credit resources of the United States, 
were now in the complete control of the Bankers' Alliance between J.P. Morgan's First National Bank Group and Kuhn and Loeb's National City Bank. On May 23, 1933, McFadden brought impeachment charges against the Federal Reserve Board, the agency he thought had caused the stock market crash of 1929. With these charges, amongst others, he said, I charge them with having taken, taken over $80 billion from the United States government in the year 1928. I charge them with having arbitrarily and unlawfully raised and lowered the rates on money, increased and diminished the volume of currency in circulation for the benefit of private interests. And then McFadden expanded his understanding to those who benefited in the crash to include the international bankers. And he said, I charge them with having conspired to transfer to foreigners and international money lenders, title to and control of the financial resources of the United States. He then ended with this statement that the cause of the Depression was not accidental. It was a carefully contrived occurrence. The international bankers sought to bring about a con condition of despair here, so that they might emerge as the rulers of us all. McFadden had a price to pay for his attempts to explain the causes of the Depression and the stock market crash. On two occasions, assassins attempted to kill McFadden with gunfire. Later he died, a few hours after attending a banquet, and there is little doubt that he was poisoned. We had discussed the rather heroic congressman, McFadden, in a four-part series here several years ago, titled Lewis McFadden on the Federal Reserve. He died, or rather he was murdered in 1935, and no one in power took up the fight after him. So it is evident that the Jews had won the financial war against the United States, which they boast of here in Protocol Number 2. A few years after that, they would engage America in avenging a financial war which they had lost, for which reason Adolf Hitler's Germany had to be destroyed. But even A. Ralph Epperson did not understand that. Continuing with Epperson, he illustrates the immediate contraction of the money supply which caused the Great Depression. And he says that now that the stock market had crashed, the Federal Reserve took steps to reduce the nation's quantity of money, as they had increased it every year from 1921 to 1929. They began to decrease it every year. The quantity of money went from a high of nearly $46 billion to a low of $30 billion in just four years. This action of the Federal Reserve rippled throughout the entire business world to the point where production at the country's factories, mines, and utilities fell by more than one-half. The total output of goods and services dropped by one-third. In spite of all the evidence to the contrary, there are still those who don't know who or what caused the stock market crash of 1929. One of these is economist John Kenneth Galbraith, 
who in his book the great crash of 1929 wrote that the causes of the great depression are still far from certain and i'm sure he got paid pretty well to say that epperson's chapter continues for a couple of pages and endeavors to show that the official sources blamed anything but the federal reserve and the banks that control it for what happened to the american economy in the decades following the great war and how any criticism of the federal reserve which did arise was quickly extinguished as recently as the nineteen seventies this represents the substance of the economic war against america which was also carried out in the rest of the world as well rather than blame the federal reserve and the banks that controlled it epperson described how the press had generally blamed the evil capitalist system instead with this we shall revisit the words of rabbi reichhorn which he cited in our last segment of this series and he said already the principal banks the exchanges of the entire world the credits of all the governments are in our hands the other great power is the press by repeating without cessation certain ideas the press succeeds in the end in having them accepted as actualities the theater renders us analogous services everywhere the press and the theater obey our orders we have already shown that by the end of the first great war and in most places even sooner the jews had control of both the banks and the press and they themselves admitted and boasted of that control in their own publications as well as in publications which we've shown which were for the digestion of the gentiles or the goyim there is no doubt that control has served them well continuing with our chapter of the international jew now that we're done with mr epperson it would be worthwhile in view of the sidelights that these articles have thrown on the money question to recall some of the forecasts and plans made in these most remarkable documents which have been attributed to the wise men of zion the world leaders of the inner council when we sink and ford is quoting when we sink we become a revolutionary proletariat the subordinate officers of the revolutionary party when we rise there rises also our terrible power of the purse so wrote the great jewish zionist leader theodore herzl in his work a jewish state on page 23 it is precisely that union of revolutionary tendencies and the financial power that the world is facing now look at russia and look at the people who swarmed at versailles and made the peace treaty the peace treaty was written by financiers it is the bill presented not to a beaten foe but to the world very few people have ever read it but its operation is evident everywhere the jewish bankers the world over are shoveling in the gold <coughs> just as we have evidence that jewish politicians in britain were i'm sorry british or so-called british politicians in england were promising the jews a 
New World Order after the Second Great War. One thing I neglected to say before we proceed is that A. Ralph Epperson's book, The Unseen Hand, is very well cited. However, I did not take the time to repeat the citations here this evening. Continuing with our chapter of the International Jew, Protocol 6 is very interesting in this connection. We shall soon begin to establish huge monopolies, colossal reservoirs of wealth, upon which even the big Gentile properties will be dependent to such an extent that they will all fall, together with the government credit, on the day following the political catastrophe. Although these words were written with Europe in view, the United States not yet having been Judaized in the 1890s, their import is clear. At the present moment, the number of business concerns in the hands of Jewish creditors through loans is very large. The Jewish idea in business is to borrow instead of making the business stand on its own two feet. The trail of that idea is seen all over our land today. And continuing with Protocol 6, Ford says, At the same time, it is necessary to encourage trade and industry vigorously. I should say that Ford quotes the Jews as saying, And especially speculation, the function of which is to act as a counterpoise of industry. Without speculation, industry will cause private wealth to increase and tend to improve the position of agriculture by freeing the land from indebtedness for loans by the land banks. It is necessary for industry to deplete the land both of laborers and capital and through speculation transfer all the money in the world into our hands, the Jewish plan for world business. To destroy Gentile industry, we shall, as an incentive to this speculation, encourage among the Gentiles a strong demand for luxuries, all enticing luxuries. And, of course, the Jews have been history's age-long panderers to all sorts of vices, not only sexual vices or the vices over lust for money, but all sorts of lust material lust, as well as sexual. And Ford says that there is the idea. Extravagance and debt support the Jewish moneylender's power. He does not lend to build industry, but to drain it. Independent industrial or agricultural wealth menaces his rule. Industry must be curbed by speculation. Speculation must be encouraged by extravagance. An industrious people soon works itself free of its debt slavery. Therefore, invent new excitements to keep it in debt. Entice people from the farms, and so forth, and so forth. All which devices are now well known to the world. And continuing with Protocol 6, We will force up wages, which, however, will be of no benefit to workers, for we will at the same time cause a rise in the price of prime necessities, pretending that this is due to the decline of agriculture and cattle raising. 
we will also artfully and deeply undermine the sources of production by instilling in the workmen ideas of anarchy and encourage them in the use of alcohol, things we've also seen in Protocol 2, in Protocol 1, I'm sorry, that wages, Ford says, were forced up that they were of little profit to the workers, that prices did rise, that the above excuses were given, that anarchistic ideas now being circulated among the workers are Jewish and are circulated by Jews, that the illicit liquor business, which was once the legal liquor business, is entirely in the hands of Jews. These things everyone knows to be true. The protocols have been in non-Jewish knowledge since 1896. The British Museum has possessed a copy since 1906. Were they written by a prophet who foresaw, or by a power that foreordained? And of course, the later is true. These were the Jewish plans all along. The Jewish World Program is shown in these protocols to be largely dependent on the false economic ideas that can induce the governments and peoples to accept. The false economic ideas, not only false, but cruelly deceptive and impossible, which are being sown among the masses of the people, are the counterpart of the other false economic propaganda being sown in the upper circles of banking and government. Jewish economic ideas are quite different from the ones which Christian thinkers put out for others to follow. Libertarianism is one such false economic idea. Libertarian, libertarianism puts the profits of an individual before the health of the nation, before the well-being of the state, and it enables parasitism. Libertarianism allowed the Jews to package up thousands of American factories and decades of American technical development and send it off to China handing it over to enemies for no charge at all. Before they did that, they did the same thing with Japan. The false idea which followed was sold by the Jewish press to Americans throughout the 1980s and 1990s, that America could function as a service economy. That's another false Jewish economic idea. Henry Ford couldn't have never seen that. That is only true, the function of America as a service economy, could only be true so long as the press's printing dollars are never turned off, and the other nations always accept those empty dollars in exchange for goods as if they had any real value. These Jewish tricks and others continue to be accepted among even the most patriotic Americans today. And the truth of the protocols, that the Goyim are indeed stupid, is proven continually. Libertarianism is a Jewish concoction. It's one of those false economic ideas that Ford asserts here. Don't work, but that the Jewish world program induces governments and people to accept, with the help of their press, with the help of their control of the economics departments in universities, and many of their other ways of convincing people, of the devil convincing people to accept a lie. Continuing with our chapter of the International Jew,
Jewish bankers know better than anyone else the utter falsity of the present system. But they profit by that falsity, and they are ruining non-Jewish rule by that falsity, and they are establishing Jewry by that falsity, and they will try to maintain that falsity until it brings the inevitable collapse, after which they hope to reorganize the world on Jewish monetary principles. So, at least, the protocols indicate, this bad regime is for the so-called Gentile period only. And, of course, that collapse did come with the Great Depression, and the world was rebuilt on Jewish monetary principles after the Second World War. Slowly rebuilt, and it's still in the, la in, in the later stages. It's not quite to the point where the protocols want it yet. The temporary nature of the present Jewish system, Ford says, and the destruction it is meant to work in the world, is shown in a third protocol where, after discussing ways and means to make the lower classes hate the well-to-do, it says, This hostility will be still more accentuated as the result of crises which will close stock exchange operations and stop the wheels of industry. And, of course, this was the situation which played out in the Bolshevik Revolution. Having organized such a general economic crisis by all the underground means available to us, and thanks to the assistance of gold, all of which is in our hands, we will throw whole crowds of working men into the streets simultaneously in all the countries of Europe. These crowds will gladly shed the blood of those whom they, in the simplicity of their ignorance, have envied since childhood, and whose property they will then be able to loot. All this, Ford says, as the world knows, has occurred in Europe. The weapons first used were economic. The subjection of the people, the revolution, was first economic. The Jewish program profited by the split which Jewish ideas have been able to make between the upper and lower classes of the Gen Gentile society. Divide and rule is the Jewish motto, as quoted in the protocols. Divide the working class from the directing class. Divide the Catholic and Protestant churches. In brief, divide Christendom on economic, creedal, social and racial lines, while the Jew remains a solid body, able because of his solidarity to handle a divided world. And this plan has succeeded. Out of the disorder of the World War, look how high the government of Jewry has been placed in Russia, Austria, Germany, France, Italy, England, and in the United States. And Ford must be excused for not understanding that Christendom should indeed be divided along racial lines. But solid racial lines at his time were in place to a great degree, and it was the Jew who later dissolved them, something else which Ford probably would not have imagined. And he continues by saying that all the Jewish bankers are still in Russia. Remember, this is 1921. It was only the non-Jewish bankers who were shot and their property confiscated. Bolshevism has not abolished capital. It has only stolen the capital of the Gentiles. And that is all that Jewish socialism or anarchism or Bolshevism is designed to do.
Every banker who is caricatured with dollar marks on his clothes is a Gentile banker. Every capitalist publicly denounced in red parades is a Gentile capitalist. Every big strike, railroad, steel, coal, is against Gentile industry. That is the purpose of the red movement. It is alien, Jewish, and anti-Christian. And so it was when the Soviet Union was dissolved that the industrial property of Russia was divided amongst a dozen or so Jews, who for the most part still possess it to this very day. But the world never really questioned this outcome. And it still doesn't. Neither do the Putin worshippers. Now one of the interesting points, continuing with Ford, about the Jewish financial scheme for the future, as shown in the protocols, is the way in which it contrasts with the financial scheme which the Jewish groups now favor. As before stated, what the protocolists now advise is not what they will adopt when their present advice has worked its hoped-for results. In other words, the Jews have forced on us a system that can't work so that they can replace it with a system that will only work for them. And that's the plan all along. The protocols which detail the future financial plan of Jewish control are numbered 20 and 21. Protocol 20 opens thus. Today we will speak of the financial program, the discussion of which I have postponed to the close of my report as it is the most difficult, decisive, and concrete of our plans. And Ford says that throughout the recital, the protocolist, the writer of the protocols, harks back to the old, meaning our present, the financial system at Ford's time, harks back to the old financial system. And some of his remarks are worth transcribing here. And Ford quotes, You know that the gold standard destroyed the governments that accepted it, for it could not satisfy the demand for currency, especially as we removed as much gold as possible from circulation. And Ford says that whether the first statement is true remains to be seen. The others are demonstrably true. The gold in the ground and the gold that is money under Jewish is under Jewish control and they withdraw it when they will. And in the late 19th and early 20th centuries there was a populist movement for a silver standard, but the Jewish bankers prevailed. I'm not saying a silver standard would have been much better. Perhaps it merits a lengthy discussion here one day in the future. Of course, the foundation of the economy may have seemed to have changed radically when the currency was taken off of the gold standard and became a complete fiat, fiat currency I believe in the early 1970s, it may have been the late 1960s, it was in the Nixon presidency. However, in truth, we have had a fiat currency since 1913. And you can't really say that we were on a gold standard. Because even though we were on a gold standard in name, nobody ever checked the banks on the gold standard anyway. Nobody ever checked to see if the banks had all that gold. <laughs> for the currency that they issued. They never had all that gold for the currency they issued. Who knows how much money they just printed without any backing at all? Do you think the 
gold banks in medieval France were honest? Don't you think that the Jews were loaning out at fractional reserve rates back then too? Ten ounces for every ounce they may have had in stock and just took the gamble that they would never be called on it? There should be no doubt that the bankers have always gambled on never being called on for their gold because they would just start a war. They had control of the finances of all the nations of Europe. You call the Jews on the gold, they'll just start a war. Therefore, all that they have is ill-gotten. It is really foolish of us to believe that the Jewish banks would be honest under a gold standard. Continuing with our chapter of the International Jew. The stupid so-called Gentile says, Why should they withdraw it? They cannot make any money that way. Once again, remember the distinction. It is not a matter of making money, but of getting it. Panics are more quickly profitable than is a long period of prosperity for men whose commodity is money. Indeed, men who deal in money as a commodity and on a Jewish plan lose their prestige if prosperity continues too long. The banker who is a banker who lives to serve the industry and the community, he profits by prosperity, but not so the money sharks. And quoting the, continuing to quote the protocols, protocol 20, we created economic crises for the Gentiles by the withdrawal of money from circulation. Mass capital stagnated. Money was withdrawn from use by the various governments, and they in turn were obliged to turn back to the capitalists for loans. Such loans naturally embarrassed the governments owing to the payment of interest charges and made them subservient to the capitalists. This is the pattern we saw carried out in 1920 and 1929 in the pages of The Unseen Hand by A. Ralph Epperson, which we have just cited. Back to the international Jew. The withdrawal of money from circulation will create panics. Everyone knows that. Such withdrawal of money is within the decision of a very small group of men. Here in the United States, we have been for a long time, 15 months, witnessing such a withdrawal and its effects. The word went by wire across the land, setting a date. On that date, values began to crash all over the country, and honest bankers tried to help, while others who knew the game profited hugely. As shown in the last article, money was withdrawn from legitimate use that it might be lent to money speculators at 6%, who in turn lent it to desperate people at rates as high as 30%. No intelligent person will attempt to explain such events on the ground of natural law or of honest practice. These things occurred in this country within recent days. I think this is occurring today, in fact these last two or three decades. It is the elastic system, you know, with the public as a monkey on one end of the elastic. A splendid idea, no doubt, if administered by the non-Jewish method of doing the greatest possible good to the greatest number, but a deliberate assassination of life and property as it has been administered. And these last several decades, the banks... A very quick with consumer debt 
at very high interest rates where there isn't enough capital for legitimate businesses and things like that where capital is very tight the protocolists then pay their respects to government fi- governmental finance with the keenness that is well justified continuing to quote the 20th protocol owing to methods allowed by irresponsible gentile governments their treasuries became empty then came the period of contracting loans and using up the assets that remained this brought all the gentile governments to bankruptcy as operating groups the governments are bankrupt now only their power of confiscation keeps them up the united states commonly referred to as the richest country in the world is just as poor as a government as is any other it has nothing it is in debt and borrowing and its creditors are constantly discounting their obligations and are putting it into worse hands than ever even the liberty bonds are almost passed out of the hands of the people into the hands of jewish fiscal agents who get money out of the necessities of the people who sell it out of the necessities of the government which borrowed and if all signs do not fail we shall one day be hearing in congress pleas for special legislation in behalf of the poor bondholders it is to be hoped when that day comes someone will have metal enough to stand up and declare who the poor bondholders are a list should be made now for future reference and of course that game has changed drastically since henry ford's day <coughs> the jews being much more sophisticated about who actually holds the bonds quoting the 20th protocol ford continues to cite the jews every loan proves government inefficiency and ignorance of governmental rights of course the government should just print the money and not have to pay any usury loans like the sort of democles i'm sorry hangs above the heads of the rulers who instead of placing temporary taxes on our subjects stretch forth their hands and beg for charity at the hands of our bankers essentially foreign loans are leeches in which no instance can be removed from the government body until they fall off of their own accord or the government itself removes them but gentile governments instead of removing them continue to place more they must perish inevitably through exhaustion by voluntary bloodletting this is the plainly expressed criticism of the jewish world government upon the governments of the nations and the truth of it cannot be gainsaid it represents a statement of common wisdom upon which the jewish world program hopes to commend itself to the common people and ford goes on to ask then why do why do not the jewish world financiers help the nations out of this false financial policy why indeed jewish financiers are the inventors of such loans as they describe here the barriers to such direct taxes as they here recommend listen in the same page as above quoting the 20th protocol you may well understand that such a policy 
although inspired by us, cannot be followed by us. And Ford goes on to get quite a bit of traction out of this one line. And he says, that is historically true. Whether it will prove prophetically true or not, compromising loans and interest are Jewish devices, historically Jewish. Practically, and at present, the Jew prefers not to borrow, except in such a way as to place all business risks on other people's money while he keeps his own safely. And the payment of interest is an abomination to him. The statements of the protocols have at least these historical and racial confirmations. The whole stupidity of the Gentile system, by which Jewish international financiers are enriched, is clearly set forth in the same 20th protocol. And Ford quotes, What is the effect of a loan, especially of a foreign loan, other than this? A loan is the issuance of government notes, pledging interest in proportion to the sum of borrowed capital. If the loan pays 5%, then in 20 years the government has paid the interest in vain, for it is equal to the sum of the loan. In 40 years it is paid out an amount equal to the loan twice over, and in 60 years three times, while the original debt remains unpaid. And Ford summarizes that that is extremely simple, and yet it is the most generally ignored fact of all. We live in a democracy, yet loans are contracted that always cost more than the amount of the loan, and no one has a word to say about it. We Americans do not know how much interest we pay every year, and we don't know to whom we pay it. This is in 1921, when the government had generally, under the Federal Reserve System, only been borrowing incredible sums of money for about eight years. We are living under the lie that a national debt is a national blessing. Only a Jewish advertising agent could have come up with that one. The most delusive doctrine ever promulgated. The amount of our national debt is the measure of our enslavement to Jewish world finance. The reader may observe in passing that Jewish apologists, John Spargo, Herman Bernstein, and others, say that the protocols were put out by the secret police of the Russian czarist regime. It is very unusual, is it not, to find the Tsar's police interested in plans to remove graft from high finance and preaching doctrines exactly contrary to the established system. The reader will find some amusement in searching for Russian police spies in the further development of the Jewish financial philosophy. In other words, the Russian secret police could not have written the protocols and could not have carried it out as it was actually being carried out before Henry Ford's eyes. We saw from the unseen hand that almost as soon as the Federal Reserve was founded, the American government was borrowing huge sums of money from the banks in order to fight a war which was essentially being fought on behalf of those same banks. Continuing with the international Jew, the purpose of Protocols 20 and 21 is not to describe the present financial chaos in which the Gentiles are encouraged to continue. That system was described in previous protocols. 
Their purpose is rather to describe how the Jewish world power plans to run things when the time comes. This is well worth considering, for there are portions of the plan which would be worth adopting. The Jewish expectation of world rule is, of course, absurd, although the mass of Jews sincerely hold it. Their condemnation is that they regard every degeneracy in society as bringing them a step nearer their goal, which explains the great assistance they give to all degenerative processes, even to this very day. We see this in the news every day. We see it in the media, and we could see it in our cities and towns every day. Ford could not have seen he could not have foreseen how bad things have gotten in America, even though he wrote paragraphs, or at least took credit for writing paragraphs such as that. And as I quote the international Jew, I attribute it to Henry Ford, because he took credit for it. Even though he didn't write it, he owned it. He may have written parts of this, and William Cameron or other writers may have written other parts. Nevertheless, Ford owned it, and he should get credit for it. Quoting another line from Protocol 20, When we ascend the thrones of the world, all such financial expediencies not being in accord with our interest will definitely be eliminated. And Ford says that is the opening note. It is another version of the statement, you may well understand that such a policy, although inspired by us, cannot be followed by us, which appeared earlier in the 20th Protocol. What then did the Protocolists, looking for world power, propose to eliminate? And he lists them. The stock exchanges will be permanently suppressed, for we will not allow the prestige of our authority to be shaken by price fluctuations on our stocks. We will fix the full value legally without permitting any power to raise or lower it. Raising prices gives the pretext for lowering them, which was what we started with the stocks and bonds of the Gentiles to undermine the markets. <coughs> that they wouldn't let their markets be undermined in that manner. This has not really yet been fulfilled, except that there are um, tripwires in place that shut the markets down when a certain amount of activity has caused them to decrease a certain percentage. I'm not sure um, what the limits are, but they do shut the markets down now when the market, I'm pretty sure, has dropped so many points or has lost X amount of value. Number two, the lawful confiscation of money in order to regulate its circulation. Now, this has only been executed in certain circumstances or through the oppressive tax structure, which actually is confiscation. Oppressive taxes are a, a form of money confiscation. And three, we must introduce a unit of exchange based on the value of labor units, regardless of whether paper or wood are used as the medium. We will issue money to meet the normal demands of every subject, 
adding a total sum for every birth and decreasing the total amount for every death. And this, well, this was close to what Adolf Hitler had done to create a viable currency for Germany, which was not based on debt. For that reason, Germany had to be destroyed. After America was taken off the gold standard, the false impression of a currency issue consistent with labor was carried on by tracking the alleged gross domestic profit. I say alleged because that number is never really known and was always screwed with as well. The scheme is a charade carried out for the general public. Back to the international Jew and the point number four of the things that they would get rid of. Commercial paper will be bought by the government which, instead of paying tribute on loans as at present, will grant loans on a business basis. A measure of this character will prevent the stagnation of money, parasitism, and laziness, qualities which were useful to us as long as the Gentiles maintained their independence, but which are not desirable to us when our kingdom comes. I, we have news for these Jews. This has happened in diverse times in the past the commercial paper being bought by the government. But now the central banks of many nations regularly purchase corporate bonds, which is tantamount to direct government involvement in the so-called free market and allows governments to subsidize corporations by choice and at will, regardless of market potential. As the protocols predict, the markets and the governments are therefore merging just not in quite the way that one may imagine from the way that the protocols describe it. Back to the international Jew. We will replace stock exchanges by great government credit institutions whose functions will be to tax trade paper according to government regulations. These institutions will be in such a position that they may market or buy as many as half a billion industrial shares a day. The reader will bear in mind that police spies of agricultural Russia forged this document in 1896. This is a parenthetical remark in the protocols by the editors of the Dearborn Independent. In other words, they're being very sarcastic. And it says, as a gentleman remarked, if this is a forgery, what must the original have been? And then the protocol goes on to say, Thus all industrial undertakings will become dependent on us. You may well imagine what power that will give us. And this hasn't yet really happened in the West, but the industry is heavily regulated and taxed to the point where perhaps it no longer really needs to happen. What happened in the communist nations after the Bolshevik Revolution is another matter entirely. There is no doubt, however, that the editor is correct in saying that this document in relation to Russia is far too prescient to have been a mere forgery. Ford continues in that same manner and he says that the protocolist now being quoted also gives his attention to taxation. Observe again the Russian police spy doing some forging. In other words the contents of the protocols rule that idea out. 
The builders of this plan for world rule recognize that when the overturn comes, they will have to be in a position to offer the people something extremely good in order to win their favor. This, of course, was the plan in Russia, although Russia presents no parallel to what the protocolists hope to do for what they call their kingdom. Russia was simply tortured in punishment. Russia was a Passover offering. Of course, he's speaking of the Bolshevik Revolution. Russia is an example of Jewish vengeance, destruction, rage, not of the rule which international Jewry hopes to put over over a world economically conquered through its own weakness and lust. And that's exactly what's happened to our race. We've been conquered by the Jews through our own weakness and lust. When we shut off the porn, the football games, and a lot of our other vices, then maybe we could start to recover. Here, then, the taxation plan, and Ford's quoting the taxation plan outlined in the protocols. When we become rulers, our autocratic government, as a first principle of self-protection, will avoid burdening the people with heavy taxes. It must not forget to play the part of father and protector, but as government organizations are costly, it is necessary to raise money for maintenance. Consequently, it is necessary to study carefully in this particular problem of checks and balances. So the kinds of taxes to be raised are, the best method of taxation is to establish a progressive tax on property, and then the receipt of purchase money or an inheritance will be subjected to a progressive stamp tax. And then, any transfer of personal property, whether in the money, whether in money or other form of value. And then, a luxury tax. The later will be taxed through the medium of a stamp imposed. And these things have been implemented in America and throughout the West. And the people are too stupid to understand that a light version of the communist system is now prevalent through the nations. We see property taxes. We see inheritance taxes. We see taxes on the transfer of personal property. It's called the capital gains tax. We've seen all this in the West. And these protocols were written in 1906 when most of these things didn't exist, even though there have been taxes on property and some forms of income at diverse times in the past. I believe there may have been an income tax that was temporarily imposed during the Civil War, if my memory serves me correctly. Back to the international Jew. The rich are to be taxed in proportion to their wealth. A tax on a poor man is the seed of revolution and is detrimental to the government which loses the big things in pursuit of the small. But there are other shrewd reasons for thus taxing the rich. Aside from this, the tax on capitalists will lessen the growth of wealth in private hands, where we have concentrated it at present as a counterweight 
to the governmental power of the Gentiles, quoting the protocols. And then quoting one more, such a measure will destroy the hatred of the poor toward the rich, who will be regarded as the financial support of the government. And that's what we see in our media today. And the exponents of peace and prosperity, the poor will realize that the rich are paying the money necessary to attain these things. And that's the perception preponderated in today's media, even though it's not true. Even though the income tax is really only for the purposes of controlling people, and the government prints all the money it wants. I'm sorry, the Federal Reserve prints all the money it wants and loans it to the government. This was written as early as 1896, Ford says. How many forms of taxation have come precisely as here outlined? In 1913, the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified, which authorized Congress to impose a tax on income, and the Bureau of Internal Revenue, the modern IRS, was established. That same year brought us the Federal Reserve Act, and the conjunction of events was not a co coincidence by any means. Returning to the international Jew, how illuminating also the following remark, money should circulate, and to hinder free circulation has a fatal effect upon the government mechanism, which it lubricates, we see this language today all the time, that thickening of the lubricator may stop the correct functioning of the whole machine. The substitution of a part of money exchange by discount paper has created such just such an impediment. Remember that when you next hear the Jewish plan that Gentiles shall do business with their own bits of paper, while Jews keep the gold reserve safely in their own hands, if a crash comes, Gentiles have the paper and Jews have the gold. If bits of paper serve ordinarily, the world may sometime decide to do away with the gold. Certainly a system which rests on cash yet works with not cash has disadvantages which depression and panic reveal. Says Protocol 22, we hold in our hands the greatest modern power, gold. In two days we could free it from our treasuries in any desired quantities. The Jews are economists, esoteric and exoteric. They have one system to tangle up the Gentiles, another they hope to install when Gentile stupidity has bankrupted the world. The Jews are economists. Note the number of them who teach economics in the state universities. Says Protocol 8, we will surround our government with a whole world of economists. It is for this reason that the science of economics is the chief subject of instruction taught by the Jews. And that was published in the Dearborn Independent, issue of July 23, 1921. And this concludes our chapter of Henry Ford's The International Jew, and the first part of our presentation of Proto Protocol Number 2. Praise Yahweh, the God of true Israel, and thank you for listening.